1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through uh, 4, 2. How can we thank you enough? Uh, hey, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. May he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God as in fact you are doing. You should do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Uh, you know, well, I kind of thought it was time to uh, do a, a series on Thessalonians. We're getting to the point, at least uh, from my perspective, that we're through most of the New Testament over the uh, time at Resurrection Church, even, you know, having done Revelation, etc. Uh, and I got to be honest, like, doing the reading for it in advance, I wasn't a super big fan of uh, of talking about this stuff in Thessalonians. Uh, but man, I, you know, it, it, as scripture often does, uh, I think there are some real surprises here that um, say something significant to us about how we should think about our life together. And uh, the, the, the second kind of, you know, uh, not caveat to this, but uh, piece to contextualize this is that my uh, liturgical brain, otherwise known as uh, Lucia Matthews, reminded me that uh, it, it is in fact Pentecost. And um, I'd, I'd spent some time thinking about actually doing a, a Pentecost-specific sermon, doing Acts or Genesis, and then I looked at the reading that we had scrolled up for this week, and it, it turns out that there's a, a, a beautiful interaction between the theme for this week in Thessalonians and uh, what is great about Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So uh, the last thing I want to say is that you all should strap in because we're about to get our Greek on. Okay. Happy Pentecost. Uh, It's an incredible theme for us to address in thinking about what matters in resurrection community. Um, The question that we opened up last week and that we'll continue this week is asking what exactly it is that makes a community, especially a a uniquely Christian understanding of community. And I want to tie that together uh, through these passages Uh, in talking about a concept that we might call holy togetherness. Uh, Holy togetherness is the the way we might think about uh, Christian community. But as you think about, you know, as we started talking about the idea of community last week, one of the distinctions that I started with was the difference between a group and a community. There are lots of, uh, you know, we we talk about groups of people, we talk about uh, groups of animals, we even talk about groups of microbes, and we'll ascribe to all those things a concept that we call community, but you know, what is it that makes a community distinct from or separate from a conception of group? What is it that is extra or added in it? And especially as Christians, what is it that is unique about a Christian view or understanding of community? So I got to thinking about it, and one of the ways you could approach this question is that, as goofy as it sounds, uh, you might think about a community being different from a group Because a community can answer the following three questions. Who, what, and why? Who is it that is involved in the community? What is it that is required of the folks in the community? And why is it that they participate in the community? And 
Paul says something here that I think is really interesting. He says that in, uh, in, uh, for, to understand what happens in the context of Christian community, there's a clear who, a, clue, a clear what, and a, clue, a clear why. Jesus is obviously the answer to all those things. People make the great joke about seminary being quite easy because the answer to everything is God. <laughs> but to be a community requires more than just shared proximity or shared interest or shared needs. It requires a mode of us living together intentionally that is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. So to be a community, you have to kind of answer these three questions. Uh, who belongs in it? What is required of you? And why do you come together? And if you can't answer the, one of those three questions, you might have a great group, but you likely don't have a community. And, you know, even more strongly, uh, even if you can't answer those three questions with something that's kind of coherent, Paul is kind of making the argument here that a Christian community, a Christian vision of community is, is unique, and unique in a beautiful way. Unique in the sense that the Christian understanding of community is the unity of all folks who are made in the image of God and organized around the person of Jesus Christ is actually the paradigmatic community. All communities kind of aim at it unintentionally or intentionally. Every community that is not organized around Christ is a shallow reflection of it. This is the kind of ideal of what it means for humans to live together. And you might have noticed that when a community can't answer one of these three questions, like the who, the what, or the why, really bad stuff happens. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, if you get hung up on the why, what is it that your community is about, or the what, uh, what is it that is required of you and your, you and your community? You'll often find that that quote-unquote community will get hung up on, uh, you know, for example, fighting about who belongs in it. And also, Contemporary USA is a great example of it. We don't quite know what's required of us. We don't quite know why we're doing it. And so we're incessantly fighting about who gets to belong in it. So community by its nature has to answer these three questions. And Christian community may be the kind of community that answers them most fully and most robustly in the person of Jesus Christ. Christian community, in other words, doesn't just answer these three questions, but it answers them in the same basic way. It's founded upon, membership is grounded in, and it's aimed at something that is inside and beyond itself, Jesus. And I kind of, you know, it's a tough thing to really parse very uh, effectively, but I you know, talked for a while last week about how Jesus is a really interesting and unique defining element of our community because Jesus is both a member of it and simultaneously the thing towards which that community points. The beautiful mystery of the incarnation is the thing that animates this Christian vision of community. So, you know, the, it, it, it becomes a much different understanding of what community is like than most of the communities that we're involved in. For most of the communities that we're involved in, what's the primary question? I think usually it's, what do I get out of it? You know, we, we ask ourselves, do we want to join a specific community or be a member of a community or do we want to withdraw from that community? Largely on the basis of what it does for us or how it configures our lives, what it uh, causes us to identify with. Uh, you know, for most of the time, the question of community that we're asking is, should we be involved in it? What is it that we can get from it? But Christian community actually works a little bit different. You know, we, we may come here because we like the friendship or the companionship or the support and guidance or theological reflection or whatever. There's all kinds of reasons that might uh, cause us to come here and to gather together. But in the end, hopefully the core thing that we're gathered here to do is to seek the face of Jesus and to do what it is that the kingdom requires of us, both uh, in the context of resurrection as a community and beyond it. So, you know, one of the ways of saying that, that Paul's getting at here, is that 
uh, Christian community is organized by something that is bigger than any individual iteration of it. In other words, Christian community, though this is a specific example of Christian community, Christian community is bigger than just this community. I mean, that's the point of Pentecost after all, isn't it? The point of Pentecost is that all these people come together and all of a sudden there's both an affirmation of all kinds of differences. Everybody speaks in a tongue that is in some way unique to a specific tribe or set of people, but in this, at the same time, there's incredible unity that comes out of it. The promise of the Holy Spirit and of the coming of the Holy Spirit is that we can have a vision of community which is oriented around uh, respect for and affirmation of difference while simultaneously creating some principle or condition for what is shared. And in fact, almost all the practices that we do in our service are doing some portion of that, uh, creating unity out of all kinds of difference. So for example, when we say the creed or we take communion, what are we doing? When we say that we don't read the mission statement of Resurrection Church in place of the creed, we don't see this specific iteration of Christian community as the primary thing. We say the creed because it aligns us with and it unites us with saints who have come throughout all of history and saints who will come after us. That's why when we say the creed, we say we believe instead of I believe or, resur- or resurrection church believes. And saying the creed, we're united in this community that is organized around the person of Christ. And the same thing with communion. Our good old friend Dave Howell, who you know some of you know, had inscribed on the front of our communion table this Greek word anamnesis. It means to remember. It's something that we do in the, in the uh, beginning of the communion ceremony. Do this in memory of me. So when we eat together, when we say the creed, when we remember those things, we are participating in and recognizing the existence of a community that is embodied here, but is so much bigger than uh, just here. Christian community is something that answers these three questions about community in a way that, to me, is incredibly compelling, that Jesus is, if you'll forgive the pun, maybe the first community organizer. Jesus is the foundation of our community. Literally everything we do here, think about or reflect on, is grounded in the person and mission of Jesus. Jesus is the core of the community, both present as the foundation and by the beautiful miracle of the incarnation is a member of it just like us. And Jesus is the goal of the community, not only the ground upon which our community is founded, not only a member, but the one to whom everything in the community aims and strives. That's our what, that's our who, And that's our why. Jesus is, as the old hymn says, our all in all. This understanding of who Jesus is for our community is woven into uh, this beautiful Greek passage that we have today in some mind-bending ways. And we're going to look really closely at one sentence. So when you read it uh, very closely, it suggests something incredible about the character of Christian community. So Paul says, ready? This is, uh, what, 3-9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? That's kind of a bulky sentence in English, but it's relatively straightforward. We're, you know, repaying thanks to God because we feel thanks for the other people uh, who are around us. We feel joy and therefore we we return thanks. Now, in Greek, this sentence is stunningly beautiful. And one of the reasons why is because it repeats the same root word, Four times. So the root word here is charis or kara. It's a word that can either be translated as joy, but it's also translated, get this, as grace and thanks. 
In fact, it may be one of the most important Christian words, charis. It's, uh, you know, it's the root of our term, uh, charity. It, it refers to giving something without the expectation of return. So that's where the element of grace comes in, that charis is the extension of a gift without asking for something back. True charity, real charity, is a gift that's given in grace. It's the gift that you give without expecting or demanding anything back. But here's the thing. Kara, the word that, use, that is translated here as joy, comes from the same root stem. So one of the ways of thinking about it is this, that the, what Paul sees here in the context of Christian community is that our natural response to true charis, to true given grace, is joy. It's beautiful. The idea that we experience joy, not just as a feeling, although joy is a feeling, not just as a, uh, you know, as a, as a means of understanding our, our relationship to whether we delight or don't delight in something, but the, what Paul's saying here is that when we see and when we experience giving, which is unconditional, our proper response ought to be a kind of joy in the beauty of that gift. So thankfulness, joy, and grace aren't separate things. They're all tied together in this act of self-giving, that the expression of joy and the expression of selfless giving and the expression of grace are all in some way uh, inextricably tied. That To me, there's something hugely profound in this, that our understanding of grace, our understanding of joy, our understanding of thanks are all expressions of the same thing. Like, think about how we think about most of these things in the context of Christian community typically. I think a lot of times we think about grace as being this, like, backstop that saves us, that God gives us in spite of who we are. And so grace always has this, like, loaded potential that it's something that we have to, in a weird way, kind of suffer as a result of, uh, you know, a weird guilt around God having to do that because of our brokenness. But that's not, that's not what grace is here. Grace here is that the character of that gift does not consider us as we are, but instead, as the scripture says, while we were yet sinners, God died for us. And so much I think about how uh, folks have missed the concept of grace in Christianity is embodied in uh, a phrase that we hear, uh, I heard all the time, especially in some of the more fundamental circles that I've hung out in, that people would say, God loves you despite who you are which is, you know, nice. I'm glad that God loves me despite who I am, but what's built into that message is that God kind of has to tolerate me or God kind of has to put up with what's so terrible about me and God's just so darn great that God is able to do it and I had to feel a little bit ashamed about that fact. It's a weird conception of grace because the vision of grace that Paul is talking about here is not of a God who looks at you and says, eh, I guess I'll do it despite that. It's of a God that looks at you and says, I delight in you and take joy in you, and therefore I give to you without the expectation of return. And then thanks, as a result, is not our obligatory response. Charity is never an obligation. Grace is never given with the expectation of return, but we're instead invited in this community. We are asked to give of ourselves, to express joy in giving, to take joy in receiving. And the whole thing, that's what's so beautiful about this sentence, is that it's basically saying joy, 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 joy four times in a row in the Greek. It's saying that that joy is the animating principle of Christian community. What does it mean in concrete terms? That, you know, I think about Beth at Christmas. 
Beth is uh, always reflected around Christmas time that uh, apparently in Long Island culture, <laughs> that's in fact a thing, there's, a, there's this intense pressure to pay back the giving of a gift by expressing joy in it. Okay, so when, when she got a gift that she didn't quite like, if she didn't express joy that was up to the task of thanking someone, she'd get in trouble. So you're supposed to have the same kind of abundant overflowing joy at the gift of socks as you are at the gift of a car. Because in the end, the expression of joy is not a realization of who you are or how you respond, but instead it's a social obligation that you have to pay back. And we all experience some version of this in relationships that are oriented around the giving of a gift. We all experience some version of this when we argue about who picks up lunch. We all express some version of this when we think about social relationships in terms of debt and exchange. But this, this Long Island culture gets right that joy and grace are related, but it gets the relationship between them exactly opposite. Because the point of a true gift, the point of a gift given in joy, is that it does not have any expectation of return. And the point of a true gift is that if we give in joy, if we give and receive with charis and kara, when we receive that gift, it's not the quality of the gift that produces joy in us, it's the beauty of the act of self-giving that we respond to. What we have here then in Paul is this sense of a, that agape, with a real condition of agape, what makes agape possible is something that's like an exchange without consequences. That we exchange joy, gifts, and love, and we do those things without the expectation of return. We do those things without demanding anything back. We do all of those things unconditionally because we love the giver and we love the gift. We never demand anything back. We never ask for any expectation of further return. The point is that the whole thing is centered not around maximizing utility, but simply around joy. That Christian community is organized around joy and grace and thanks, and that that is the thing that creates the possibility of love. That each one of us loves every person in this room. And you know what? If uh, You don't even have to ask the question, does that person love me in return? Because the point is, in the context of a Christian community, we simply love and rejoice in love without expecting a return in the same way that Jesus loves and gives without asking for a return. That is the definition of agape, that Christian community is founded around a love that is self-sacrificial and oriented towards the good of the other person. So if that's the kind of whole thing behind this idea of charis, the sentence in Greek is so beautiful. It sounds like this, how can we thank? And the word here is eucharistan. It's the same word that we use for Eucharist or communion. How can we euchariston God for you out of the joy, kara, that we feel, kairoman, before our God because of you? And here's the thing. The English translation that the joy that we feel because of you is not quite right. The Greek literally says, here's how crazy this is. How do we pay back the joy, kara, that we are joying, karomen? It's not just the idea of feel, it's that Paul is talking about joy here as something that is performed, that is experienced, that is gifted, that's a process, that the point of joy here is not in the reception of the gift, it's in the giving of the gift that we feel joy, and we do that towards one another and towards other persons. 
And then the second thing about the sentence that's amazing is it's not just about the joy that we feel before our God, okay? That's, that's like saying, you know, well, God's watching the whole thing, and if I, you know, tell Gabe and Annabeth to sit down because it makes it easier for everyone to focus on the sermon, for example, uh, that God would then be pleased because there was order restored in the congregation. That's not the vision of joy uh, before God here, because it's not just that like God is outside of this relationship looking at the exchange of gift and of joy. The Greek here quite literally says the joy that we are joying, wait for it, in front of and in place of God. Isn't that amazing? It's not just that we feel that joy in front of or in place of God. It's that God is literally present both in the character of the other person and simultaneously as someone who is outside the relationship. Remember that thing I said last week about Christ being a member of the community and the goal of our community? This is the perfect example. The joy that we feel, the joy is experienced both in place of God That is, because God is here with us, among us, in our community, and in front of God. God is outside of us and is in some way uh, an observer to or the goal of the community. It's beautiful if you think about it. The unconditional, unlimited, freely given joy of God's grace is both something that we experience and express, and the target of it is every person who is a child of God and who serves as the face of God individually and corporately. I mean, it's really heavy if you think about it. It blows away all the distinctions between giving and receiving, between yourself and other. It's asking us to understand and to live in the context of a community which is oriented around the person of Christ, the idea of a holy togetherness. So the real way you'd get at this sentence, as goofy as it sounds, would be to translate it something like this. How can we rejoice enough to our God to respond to the joy that we are joying in place of and in front of God because of you. It's a lot different than the joy we're experiencing in front of God. It's weird and bulky, but it gets at the point. Everything in our cosmos, everything in our existences, not to mention our resurrection, all that is a product of the love and the grace of charity of God. Our response then, which is not required of us, but is something that is evoked or called out in us, is to take joy in extending and receiving joy to other people and to God, because to do unto the least of these is to also do unto me. When I express and experience joy in the gift or the receiving of a gift towards a specific person, I also do it towards the person of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing redefinition of what community is. And it ought to change us the way that kind of joy, that vision of real joy that Paul's talking about produces this extravagant transformation in us. Maybe I'll get to another you know, sentence in the passage. He says, night and day we pray most earnestly, and the Greek here means we extravagantly beseech that we may see you face to face and restore what is ever lacking in your faith. Paul is saying here, that when we experience that kind of joy, that holy togetherness that kind of erases the boundary between ourselves and between others, between gift and between the expression of joy, when we are into it, all of a sudden we are transformed so that we don't ask the question of what do I get back from this relationship, but instead we give without reserve. We give to others. Why? Not because there's a moral obligation for us to give like that, because in that community, The founding principle of it is that we presuppose that everything is also given to us. And because everything is also given to us, we don't have to ask the question, oh, am I going to get enough back 
if I give here. Instead, everybody is throwing in completely and fully. The flip side of agape here is that when we die to ourselves, we live to the person of Jesus. Now may our God and Father himself, Paul says, and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound. Increasing and exceeding is the Greek, and love for one another. Man, there it is. That's the thing that really surprised me about really looking closely at the Greek and Thessalonians is that it really does all three of the moves that we've been talking about in the relationship between the holy and the sacred, between giving and joy. It says this, most of the communities that we're in, most of the communities that we experience, most of the communities that we're engaged with, whether we like it or not, feel to us to be zero-sum games or at least competitive games. Even in the context of relationships with our friends, with our family, we think about what can I give? How is it that what I'm giving is being reciprocated? Am I giving more than the other person? Am I experiencing disproportionate burdens that the other person's not engaging with? All of the relationships that we're in, or almost all the relationships we're in, we're kind of asking this question of, are people giving enough? Am I getting enough back? Am I getting what I deserve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all calculations which are necessary to get by in the world, et cetera. But they are ultimately about understanding relationships as being competitive and resources as being finite. And we're preserving our resources for ourselves to protect ourselves, and we don't want to give too much because if we give too much, we are diminished. But Paul is saying here that when we give in this kind of love, when we love in this kind of community, there's not a zero-sum game, there's a positive-sum game. The point is that as we love, love increases, that the nature of love here is not scarcity. It's not that we lose by loving, but rather in a community that is oriented around grace, the rules are different. There's an abundance there, and the name of that unrestrainable, uncalculable, unconditional, unwavering, undomesticatable, unconventional, unlimited love together, what is the name of it? It's holiness. That's what holiness is. I know you're getting sick of hearing about this holy and sacred thing, but, you know, too bad. The point of the sacred is to protect and preserve what is inside a boundary. The point of the sacred is about fear and worrying about scarcity and competition. We're worried that if we open ourselves to impurity, the impurity will eat away at us. If we allow in the unworthy, they'll take resources from the uh, sacred scarcity. The logic of the sacred is about scarcity, it's about competitive, it's about zero-sum, it's about self-interest, it's about all those things because it understands the character of the kingdom of God to be limited and constrained. Holiness, on the other hand, says that love is a positive-sum game, that to love increases your capacity for more love, and that in real community, in holy community, love overflows and abounds beyond its limits, that when we give, we are somehow able to give even more, that there's not a reduction in our power for acting and our power for being together, but instead an increase in it, that love creates more love. And Paul even says it here. The goal of all this is what? So that we may strengthen in your hearts holiness. And the Greek word here is beautiful. You know what it means? I kid you not. Holy togetherness. So that we may find a kind of holy togetherness. And when that holy togetherness happens for Paul, it happens. And, you know, the English translated as, as toward here. But the Greek word emprosane means it happens in, toward, and in front of God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his holy ones. To me, that's mind-blowing. 
that Christian community is a fundamental reconfiguration of community, not just because it can answer questions, what makes a community, because it totally rewrites the rules for love, the presuppositions that we have about relating to one another, the presuppositions that we have about what we lose or what we gain by being in community. That's the point, I think, of Pentecost. At Pentecost, we celebrate the idea that the Holy Spirit miraculously affirms a radical plurality among the believers, folks speaking in every tongue, etc., but simultaneously a unity and togetherness of the whole body of Christ. One of the, I don't know, it's a weird way of saying it, but you know, we're not, the Holy Spirit doesn't exist just to kind of round out a pleasing third to the Trinity. You know, the, the Holy Spirit exists because it's a way of saying that built into the very being and built into the very essence of God is this idea that there is a new principle for living that is rooted in togetherness that is rooted in the possibility of a different principle for living. Here's the amazing thing that, to me, ties all this stuff together. Pentecost, you may recall, replaced an older holiday. Anybody remember what the older holiday is? I'm sure Trey does. Trey, what's the older holiday? Right, it goes by a different name. It's the... Shavuot? What's that? Is it Shavuot? How you pronounce it? I don't know. You're Hebrew. Yeah. Okay, so this was the uh, holiday that folks in Israel would have to celebrate the harvest. And it also became the holiday that celebrated the giving of the law. Okay, so the, the old holiday for Pentecost that Pentecost replaced was about the two basic principles that allowed the uh, community of Israel to exist, the food that they had and the institutional and legal order that founded it. Pentecost replaces it. It replaces it and it says there's a new principle here for life that's not just about thinking about getting by, and it's not just thinking about what are the institutional arrangements that we need. The new principle for life is that we have a possibility in Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit for a Pentecost community, a community that is rooted in holy togetherness, that we can live in a way that is spirit-inspired, and that's a stupid but beautiful redundancy, with Christ at the center. And with the help of the Spirit, it means that every time that someone says, that we ought to contemplate some practical limit to love, to giving, to who is included in our community, to who is a member, to who is deserving, that that person who argues for a limitation is placing themselves outside of this vision of holy community or holy togetherness. They're secretly arguing for the primacy of the sacred over the holy, because if you're committed to this idea of the holy, if you're living a life in the context of the spirit, it means we can't impose any condition that's about purity or qualifications for a community or about implicit or explicit relative differences in worth, any of those things. It means that the Christian vision of community must, by its very nature, be the most radical understanding of togetherness of all. It says that if anyone argues that uh, we should not include or that we should not love, that they've missed the boat, that the point is that in the understanding of Christian community, that we ought to include and love the poor, the sick, the unclean, the misfit, the outsider, the slave, the harlot, the foreigner, the leper, the oddball, the unfit, the prisoner, and everyone else, regardless of consideration about sex, gender, orientation, political persuasion, race, color, creed, nationality, ability, proclivity. 
the root of Christian community is to dissolve those differences so that before we ask any question about who belongs or under what condition we ought to give to them, before we ask any question about what they ought to do, the first thing that we have to do is be in the context of a holy community with someone where no one is excluded, where everyone is included, and where everyone is bound up in a relationship of love. And that is the precondition for us litigating any other question about who people should be or what they should do. We're invited into a vision of community that is more radical than the conservative vision of community that says humans are rational, responsible individuals, and they should uh, be able to make good decisions. uh, And if they don't, they should be excluded. And it shows the utter emptiness of liberal conceptions of community that are rooted around the idea that if someone is intolerant, they're excluded, or that if someone doesn't fully qualify as human, that they're not worthy of being protected, or they're not worthy of being included if they don't meet certain minimal standards. That's the point. The Christian conception of community ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable because it is so all-encompassing and so radical that it demands as our first relationship to anyone else a kind of presupposition of holy togetherness that asks that we give of ourselves fully enabled by the Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of joy Paul's talking about. The more I think about it, the more I realize that all the different principles that we talk about, what involve community or what ought to be the defining element of community or how do we think about what binds community together or what ought communities do, the thing that we have so neglected that's a beautiful resource within the Christian community that we don't talk about outside of the church is that the basic element of community is this joy, this relationship between joy and grace and thankfulness. And that real community is a community that is at its core completely dedicated to taking joy in the other, to giving to other folks, to expressing and receiving in joy, animated by the Spirit, and for the purposes of extending the kingdom of God without borders, without exclusion, without asking who is not fully human, without asking about attitude or ignorance or acceptability of belief or politics or any of those things, that first and foremost, Christ reaches out to every person who is made in the image of God and asks that they be defined and included in a community that is loved and that is full of joy. Remember those three questions about defining a community, who, what, and why. They're easy for us. Who belongs in Christian community? Every person that is made in the image of God. Every single human being is reflective of their creator. What is required for membership? Joy. That you love and give thanks unconditionally. And finally, why? Because Jesus. Amen. Questions to talk?